Hi everybody, Marty Schneider here from Breaking Mayberry. What you're about to hear is the taping, the live audio from our first live show as part of the Everything is Awesome Headstrong Comedy Festival a couple weeks ago here in Philadelphia. It was a great show. Thank you to everybody who came out. Thank you to everyone who donated uh, the fundraiser for the Headstrong Foundation. Beat its goal, uh, which was fantastic. And it was a really good show. A lot of good comedy. A lot of good podcasts put on shows. Our friends at the Ghouls Next Door had the headlining slot. And uh, it was just pretty excellent all around. The venue that we did this at, South Street Cinema, you've probably heard Dan and I talk about it before, has a Kickstarter right now to stay in business for quite some time it is a just a net a treasure for uh, philadelphians and weird cult cinema and they do a lot of great charity work like this so that kickstarter is going to be in our show notes hope you enjoy this live audio the audio quality isn't as good as our studio obviously but uh i think it's worth listening to and we'll be back next week with a brand new regular episode if you're one of our Patreon subscribers, later this week we're going to drop a new bonus episode where Dan and I watched Walker, Texas Ranger. No one asked us to. We just did it. All right, so that's it. Uh, we'll see you here next week, and we'll see you all down at the fishing hole. ever live show of Breaking Mayberry, part of the Everything is Awesome Headstrong Festival. I am one of your hosts, I am Marty Schneider. I'm the other one, I'm Dan Ludwig. Uh, and before we get started, I'm just going to run through our sponsor list real quick. Uh, people who've made this happen, by the way, if you have not donated, please donate to the Headstrong uh, Foundation. They provide financial support and counseling and housing support for people whose lives have been affected by cancer. So that's why we're here, doing free shows and begging people for money, and uh, we're being helped along by, you want to just go one by one on these. Uh, these sponsors, Joe Giuliani Photography is our festival photographer. He's a photographer here from here in Philly. You can get in touch with him at, at joegiuliani.wordpress.com. The next one is Fireball Printing, which are surprisingly printers. Uh, one of the biggest printers in Philadelphia, servicing clients all over North America. Digital, large formats, and more. Damn fine printing. Damn fine printing. <laughs> Uh, as, as Andy would say, it's good printed. Uh, we're not doing an Andy Griffith one for all. <laughs> we are not. Uh, Crude Humor Studios is running sound and producing the festival. They are in charge of the microphones that you hear us talking on right now. Uh, they are based outside of Philadelphia. They are a production company specializing in audio productions and live events. CrudeHumorStudios.com Steel Empire, with an E at the end, is also running sound. A uh, podcast <laughs> network based outside of Philadelphia. Uh, uh, in addition to this venue, they're also, let's do, I'll just do the venues right now. Uh, venues are all Thirsty Dice, Milk Boy, Tattooed Mom, and of course South Street Cinema, where we are right now. Uh, and our big presenting overall sponsor is That's Entertainment, which is the best entertainment website featuring film, TV, comic reviews, original videos, and a podcast network that we're not part of. <laughs> one day. Uh, the other one is Tellus, the presenting sponsor. 
where fantasy meets superheroes. The that, world is in your hands. I feel like superheroes are already fantasy. I feel like they've met at the... You know what? I'm not going to... It's They're giving superheroes swords. Uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, and finally, of course, as we just mentioned, the Headstrong Foundation. I'll read their blurb. The Headstrong Foundation offers financial, residential, and emotional support to families affected by cancer. Based just outside of Philadelphia, where patients often travel seeking care and leaving their homes behind. They support cancer patients and their families with peer support, comfort kits, financial help, and lodging for families who have no place to stay while in the Philadelphia area. Donate today. There's a collection jar at your venue. It's right there. Please don't come up while we're doing the microphone thing, though. Uh, and don't help us reach donations. our... Donate whenever. You throw throw money at us yeah. like we're strippers. Yeah. Every time we make a good like bon mot or have like a witty quip, just go woo and throw a crumpled dollar bill at us. Whip nickels at us freely. We'll assume it's for the jar. Uh, so if you've never listened to Breaking Mayberry before, which I'm going to assume no one has, uh, what happens is that Dan and I break down episodes of classic television, mostly the Andy Griffith Show, uh, and you might be thinking, "Wow, these guys." really like Andy Griffith for some reason. No. No, we do not. It torments us. We we don't really dislike the Andy Griffith show either, to be fair. We're more just like immensely confused by the existence of the Andy Griffith show. It's broken our understanding of what television actually is. As far as I can tell, until about 1972, TV shows didn't need to be about anything. They were just like excuses to go from vaudeville shtick to vaudeville shtick. We chose Andy Griffith specifically, though, because this show was, at its time, immensely popular in a way that no other show has been since or ever was before. And it was at a time that was probably very normative for most of our parents. Very formative, sorry. Normative is what you wanted to say. Uh... For a lot of our parents and grandparents. Yeah, no, it, uh, it established for a lot of people what normal is, especially in a time when TV was sort of emerging as something that was building a consensus among America at a rate that normally would have taken decades. Uh, TV was able to do that in, in just years, through just, and for the first time, everyone was looking at the same thing and understanding the same thing and having their definitions of normal updated simultaneously. And the Andy Griffith show came about during the, the peak of that and was massively influential on that level. You gotta understand, this show, when there were only like three channels to choose from, for its entire like eight-year run, never finished lower than seventh in the ratings. It was everywhere, and it kind of still is. Like we've all seen reruns. We all know what happens when like the Atlanta Braves get a rain delay. Like we all kind of know right now that if we had a sick day. Somewhere, some channel is playing a rerun of the Andy Griffith show. And some TV show that you've watched has stolen a script, has stolen a plot from them. And so we don't think about it because it's super ubiquitous. But there is a chunk of people who really, really believe in this show. They have celebrations for it. What? I'm, I was saying, like, I was telling him before we were coming back, I was like, my dad is obsessed with Andy Griffith in ways that yeah. I can't fathom. And he'll, he'll just stop what he's doing even watching an episode we can't fathom it either. Yeah. <laughs> but here's here's the way that I figured it out, right? There's a chunk of people who are like really into it. They like use it for poli- for political policies. I've heard it referenced in gun control arguments. And the Andy Griffith show is kind of like a garden hose 
Like, most people don't think about their garden hose. Most people don't remember buying a garden hose. It came with the house. But if you're in suburbia, you definitely have one. Where'd it come from? When did we buy? I don't know. It's connect- It's in the side of the house. We don't think too hard about it because it's a fucking garden hose. But there is a small group of old people who really worship that garden hose. And they will post over-pixelated pictures of minions on Facebook complaining about how my generation sucks because we've never drank from the danger of a garden hose and we have bike helmets and participation trophies or whatnot. And (laughs) we never had the elixir from the garden hose that they did. So Dan and I started to wonder, what's up with this hose water that all the baby boomers are always talking about? And we tasted some of this this hose water and we were like, that's it's all right. Ideal phrasing, but yeah, right. I'm, 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 I'm going with it. We tasted some of this this hose water. We were like, eh, this is all right. Got a got a minerally aftertaste, and then we uh, got our little pH strips and we dipped it in, and we found so much lead. <laughs> it is chocked full of insane bullshit. And to be fair, all of us like stuff that is probably bad for us. So what Dan and I do is. We can't prove that the lead has seeped into your grandpa's brain, and that's why he's flying a Blue Lives Matter flag over his house in Ardmore. But we can't disprove it either. So... It's a percentage point or two. It's in there. It's a factor. So, Dan and I don't want to be those guys that only like stuff that we politically agree with. We don't want to be that stereotype. So, every week we kneel down and take a big old gulp right from Andy Griffith's hose... And we tell you... We really should have proved this language. We tell you if the delicious flavor is worth the lead poisoning. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it is. A lot of times it isn't. And the episode we're going to talk to you about today is a prime example. Possibly like the epigenesis, patient zero, for the weirdness that is the Andy Griffith Show. It is an episode of the Andy Griffith Show that I have unironically referred to as a banger. Uh, it has the perfect encapsulation of everything weird and insane and upsetting about this show, just like in one neat little package. Uh, real quick, I want to take a temperature. You talked about your, your dad loving the Andy Griffith show. Does anybody else have any experience with this show? Like, are we, all right, everyone's kind of... So, we, we don't have to explain the core concept, really. Like, uh, there's there's Andy Griffith. He has a child played by Ron Howard, who was a terrible voice, a, a terrible child actor. Uh, Take that, Academy Award winning director Ron Howard. He's when so you were a kid, you screamed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Barney Fife, Christ, Barney Fife. Uh, <laughs> Don Knotts. This was like Don Knotts' big breakout role before he, like, I think, got like Mr. Limpid and started playing a cartoon fish who fights Nazis. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so core concept is, I think, understood by the room. All right, so we're talking about Season 1, Episode 8, Andy the Matchmaker. And I love that title because it sounds so innocuous. Yes. Oh, man, somebody knows what we're talking Hell about. Yes! yes! I'm, I'm so excited for this. Okay. Yeah, we're off to a rollicking like start. I, this is the greatest hit. <laughs> yeah. All right, so... Uh, I guess we can just jump right into it. We don't need to set any stages for you. Uh, so, normally I would do a plot synopsis right here at the beginning. I'd do like the one word, the one sentence summary from Wikipedia. But I'm not going to do that because I want you to be just as surprised and confused as we are. Because this one starts off like normal to the point of boring. 
and it takes a hard left at Act 2. It, it starts out as Growing Pains, and then it's The Shield, and then it's a very sad epi- uh, sad version of Much Ado About Nothing. It takes <laughs> several hard right turns. All right, so let's, let's go ahead and get into this. So uh, the episode starts with Andy Griffith working on the police car. He's got the engine uh, exposed. He's got his hood up, and... His deputy, the chinless wonder Barney Fife, uh, angrily strides across the street. And Andy says, hello, Barney. And Barney responds with, hello, Barney. It's goodbye, Barney. And he marches into the office where they work. I feel like before we go, we should just do a quick bit on like who Barney Fife is. Because it's very much based around his character and his needs. Barney Fife is pure evil. He is the most insane, upsetting character that... I think I've ever encountered. He, this is not an exaggeration. He haunts my dreams at this point. I've been watching this show for a year, and he is my Slender Man. Uh, uh, now I'm, I'm just gonna run through some quick, uh, some quick bullet point descriptions of who this character is. And the entire time I'm doing that, I want you to remember this is a character in a jaunty, fun family comedy, not something much darker. So he is the deputy sheriff of the town. Actually, he's 50% of the police force of the town, you should clarify. (laughs) Uh, He has a crippling inferiority complex, which he often deals with through grandiose lies, verbal abuse, and threats of violence. He calls his gun baby. Uh, He talks about his gun constantly in a manner that is Freudian as hell. Uh, But he's, uh, skip to that part, he's not allowed to have ammunition for this gun. Because every single time he touches it, he accidentally fires, often in the vicinity of a young boy's head. Uh, yeah. He, like, once per episode, he'll try to pull out his gun and almost shoot himself or someone else. Uh, his feelings are easily hurt. Uh, his masculinity is razor thin. Uh, he's, ex- he's very easily to startle, like a horse, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He has delusions of grandeur, usually coming in the form of being able to murder people really effectively. He often claims about his quick draw that he's gunned people down in the street and stuff like that. Uh, He exercises his authority at literally any opportunity, which include arrests, issuing fines, or political pageantry with little or no prompting. Uh, We'll just sum it up. It's very weird to watch a television show in 2019 where most of the jokes are, ha-ha, small-town police regularly abuse their power. It is, he, like, if if the description of this is the cop on, like, a small-town police uh, police force who gets indicted for accidentally shooting a kid. Like, he, and and this is, like, in a wacky, this character has been on Scooby-Doo. Like, in between uh, guest spots by the Harlem Globetrotters and Sonny and Cher, there's just, like, this small-town abusive sheriff. Side note, I want to talk about that that Scooby-Doo episode, because they don't call him Barney Fife, but he shows up in costume. They refer to him as the actor Don Knotts, which makes me wonder, in the Scooby-Doo universe, does Don Knotts have lawful authority? Like, do they just assume that all actors... I mean, I guess he's got just as much lawful authority as the fucking Scooby-Doo kids do. In the, in the Scooby-Doo universe, Don Knotts has lost his mind, disappeared into his most famous role, and just become dangerously unhinged, and they let him solve mysteries with a group of kids in a van. Oh boy, it's Tom Hanks! Be careful, he's a six-year-old boy in a grown man's body! Yeah! <laughs> I... I mean, it's 
been established that the Scooby-Doo universe is just almost a post-apocalyptic nightmare where the group of teens wander from collapsed town to collapsed town, solving vague mysteries. Great for, like, owning a costume shop, though. You yeah. are in business in the Scooby-Doo universe. Only booming economy. Uh, you, I think we can run through this real quick. He's got weird sexual hang-ups. Uh, he's constantly looking for... Oh, this is a fun one. He is constantly looking for ways to attain and consolidate authority, including demanding military-grade equipment. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if, if small-town police forces had, had military-grade equipment? That's, that's ridiculous, right? Why would, they, why would they ever want that? That's, that's hilarious. Oh. Con- <laughs> he constantly caresses rifles that are in the jail and wishes that one day there was a riot so that he could use them. Somebody. You know, on this very small town where he knows everyone, he's just like, one day I'll get to shoot someone I know in the face. <laughs> but we cannot stress this enough. He is the deputy sheriff. He is upholding the law. He is, and it, it's kind of one of the worst and best characters at the same time because he's deeply annoying to watch do literally anything. Uh, and he is also like deeply predictive. Like they had this wacky character and they accidentally predicted like the face of American fascism that it would be deeply rooted in male insecurity and and sort of like just just unremarkability. And I think I think what bugs us the most about this though is we're very used to TV shows having to have a point. Like normally your goofy character does something dumb, they realize why it's dumb and they learn something for the next episode. Yeah. That is not what happens here. Uh, no one learns anything. Seinfeld was described as no hugging, no learning. The Andy Griffith show is all hugging, no learning. Most of the time the Andy Griffith Show characters don't even know what they did wrong, and they were just good. We're good. They were just figuring out laugh tracks and the idea that TV shows should have a point, and it really shows. All right, so Barney is threatening to to quit the police force. This is about the, I don't know, eighth time we're going to see him do this. Uh, he's constantly threatening to leave. Uh, and they march into the courthouse, the jailhouse where they work, and Andy is asking... What's wrong this time? Why are you try- threatening to leave? As Barney does basically a strip tease, ripping off his belt, his his buttons, he's, hey, he's doing an inventory. All right, we got one gun, one bullet out of my pocket, one whistle, etc., etc. You guys can picture the scene. Ty, he's taking off, like, clothes. It starts out pretty, like, superficial items, and then he's just removing articles of clothing. It starts to go to a really weird place. By the end of it, he's basically doing a bachelorette party thing for... <laughs> only for Andy. Yeah. Because he's the only one in the room. <laughs> uh, and so Andy says, well, what's got you all in a rile this time? And Barney says, I caught your son, Opie, writing a mean poem about me. <laughs> yeah. He says uh, there's graffiti on the wall, and he recites the poem that he's written down, and it is... Do you have it? Yeah. There once was a deputy called Fife who carried a gun and a knife. The gun was all dusty, the knife was all rusty, because he never caught a crook in his life. Which... Uh, <laughs> on one hand, I want to be like, how do these kids think arrests work? But yeah, no, that's they kind of nailed it. Uh, <laughs> I want you to think about like, it. This you, is This is like Twitter shitposting. Imagine... <laughs> Imagine a kid writing a tweet devastating enough to make a cop quit his job. They would just transcend to pure energy. Like, they would, they would go to Troll Valhalla. It would be incredible. Uh, but, yeah, so kids make fun of him for not having shot anyone in the face or stabbed anyone in the neck. And he's like, oh, God, they got me. Uh, I have to quit. 
Dang. Yeah. Uh, and then the next line is, they're acting like I don't want to catch crooks. I catch them in a minute, but there aren't any. And he then goes on like this almost like Twilight Zone-esque monologue of, uh, oh, if only someone would just commit one good crime. If someone would just come in and murder somebody. Like he, he wishes that two drifters would come in from out of town one of them would get shot in the face so that he could investigate it. You're laughing. This is not a joke. Yeah. This, is word, this is word for word what happens. And Andy rightfully yells, Barney, what is wrong with you? Yeah. And Barney's response is, well, nobody we know. I don't want anyone we know to die, but if two fellows are going to murder each other, they might as well do it here. And then somewhere a monkey's paw curls yeah. a finger. <laughs> and- like, it, it feels like there, it should be a Wonderful Life type thing where an angel shows up and be like, oh, you wish that there was a murder in your town? What if 10,000 murders? <laughs> like a Twilight Zone episode or something. I, I feel like we should establish, if you're watching all of these at once, as two idiots are, you will know no. there is a lot of crime in Mayberry <laughs> that the that Andy and Barney are just choosing to ignore. There are hillbillies shooting shotguns at each other up in the woods all day long. And they say it's okay, they're just a feud in families. The hills are alive with the sounds of moonshine and gun and buckshot just being fired wildly, and they're just like, that's, that, that's over there. Woods crime. That's not real crime. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's basically Mortal Kombat rules, where as long as you yell, We're in a feud, you're allowed to commit murder. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's how the that's how the law works in Mayberry. Yeah, who's going to enforce the law upon hillbillies? <laughs> what we don't have all day. Uh, and so, uh, enter Opie, who is now just, like, a human loudspeaker, and... Ron Howard could not act. I cannot emphasize this enough. I don't know when he learned to act, sometime between this and Happy Days, but he just, his entire spiel was he would come in, scream at the top of his lungs, just basic exposition information. Now, Barney's logic is that it had to have been Opie, because he came across Opie, caught him red-handed, holding the chalk in his hand. This, let be clear here, this is chalk graffiti. It will go away. Uh, and he's upset that Andy is not automatically taking his side against his seven-year-old son. Yeah. And Andy realizes that there's no way that Opie could have done this. He says, Opie, what happened? Opie says, I saw some... He says some uh, older fellas writing the poem on the wall. And I know that that's supposed to mean, like, older kids. But I have this, like, idea in my head that it's, like, 35-year-old men. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, getting together and writing a, a slightly mean limerick about this dickhead that's in their, their town. And then a little boy just rolls up there like, small child, cheese it! Get yeah. out of here! <laughs> <laughs> they shove the, the chalk in his hand and run away. No, they shove the chalk in his hand. Get in their Model T and drive yeah. away. Because these are adults of driving age. Yeah. <laughs> they have to get back to their office jobs. Crank up the jalopy. Yeah. Apparently it's Archie and Jughead in my brain. Yeah, um, yeah. As all extras in a 1950s scenario are. Uh, so, so uh, Opie says that they gave him the chalk and ran. And he says that they ran away like two hound dogs that just backed into a porcupine. Which is one of many, many nonsensical animal metaphors that we have encountered in this show. They're just southernisms, but they're just basically like, say an animal did something and throw an adjective in there. Oddlier than a polecat uh, in a cactus base. Louder than a 
uh, than an ornery duck. Like, any time there hasn't been a joke in a couple of minutes, they're just like, animal metaphor. Just toss in an animal metaphor and do a laugh track over it, and these idiots won't notice that it's nothing. Like, <laughs> uh, so, but the, the real, like, glove that doesn't fit here is that Opie doesn't know how to write yet. Yeah. He's, Opie's he's illiterate. Like, my, one, my son would never lie to me, and two... He is illiterate as shit, so his ability at rhyming would probably be suspect. That also concerned me a little bit, because Opie's like seven years old. Like, I'm, not, I'm sure he can't be writing limericks yet, but he should have a few words down. North am, Carolina public school system. <laughs> uh, so that's honestly a pretty good reason why Barney shouldn't be a cop. Yeah. Uh, is that he couldn't figure out this basic of quote-unquote crimes. Yeah. Uh, so he begins to, like... Turn in his whistle, turn, he goes over, and as Dan said, strokes the rifles lovingly. Someday. He, he says Someday we'll be together. He's got, like, a picture of shotguns in his locket. He says he goodbye opens to and Andy, and it is, like, two seconds. He's like, all right, so I will catch you later, Chief. Goodbye, Jailhouse. I'm going to miss you so much, rifles. I, <laughs> we never had our time in the sun together, and that's going to that's gonna eat away at me for the rest of my days that... I never got to open fire on a crowd with you. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta keep going because we're not even at the weird yeah, stuff yeah. yet. Uh, uh, what happens? Oh, um, Andy basically says you're gonna die without this job. Like, what are you going to do if, if you're not working? Uh, Barney says he could always take a job down at the pickle factory. They need a brine tester, which is a num- one of many many things that the Andy Griffith show says. Not realizing how gay it sounds. Yeah. Uh, it is also the most, like, of all job descriptions you could say you're going to do, it is the most you'll be dead within a year job description imaginable. Side like, note, Pickle Factory, great name for a gay bar. Or a strip club. Strip club, too. Yeah. Uh, then an, a woman comes in, Miss Rosemary, who looks so uncomfortable about everything all the time. If you need to picture this character, picture just, like, human sadness and then dress it like your grandmother. Uh, like, and this is not like a dig on the way this woman looks. She has like her her choices as an actress are to look like she's about to cry every single second of every every scene. She has like giant Powerpuff Girl eyes, and they're screaming constantly with just like a deep existential horror. <laughs> so she comes in because, uh, like any woman in the Andy Griffith Show, she has to deliver clothing or food or like. You know, have a purpose to be there, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and she is there to deliver Andy's judging coat, which is his judge robes. Because, uh, fun part of this, in addition to being the sheriff, he is also the judge of the town. He is the... Uh, the justice of the peace. The justice of the peace. Which, if that sounds like a conflict of interest, yeah. Uh, do you think that the Andy Griffith show acknowledges it? Multiple characters bring it up, and they are always immediately arrested for saying so. Uh, <laughs> which, yeah. Uh, moving, moving on to Moving on, moving yeah. on. So she, I guess, I'm going to say that maybe she, like, runs the dry cleaner or something, or she just took his coat to the cleaners or whatever. She comes in, uh, and she gives him his coat, and he's very happy about it, and then she looks at Barney and says, oh, hello, Mr. Fife, at this sweaty, scrawny, chinless, like, phallus of a man just trembling over in the corner. Uh, Goopy dog's head on an elongated fetus. And and, uh, they talk a little bit about how Barney walks her to church every Sunday. Uh, But he doesn't want to, like, real childish, like, oh, well, it's not a big thing. It's on the way. And they, like, 
act like they're into each other in a way that two 40-year-old people should not be doing. They do uh, middle school flirting, where they just kind of, for a really long time, acknowledge that each other exists. Like, he doesn't even, like, compliment what she's wearing. He's like, you are wearing clothes and do have hair. And she's like, thank you. You are a human person occupying space composed of matter. And like, what? Thank you for noticing. Anyway, uh, this prompts Barney immediately to unquit the force and pick up all of his stuff from the desk because he realizes, oh, Miss Rosemary likes a man in uniform or some stupid I think it's just that he get, gets flustered and forgets that he's quitting. Whatever. He, he, yeah. he finds an excuse to leave and picks up all of his stuff and runs off, which is fairly funny. And then... It's just Andy and Miss Rosemary alone. And the Shouldn't next, be this creepy. It should not be this weird, but he has her essentially backed into a corner. And her body language is turned away from him. She's very clearly not interested in what he's trying to say. But he reads it as playing coy. And I guess we in the audience are supposed to read it as playing coy. Because uh, he keeps saying things like, well... Hello there. Pretty thing like you could have your choice of any man. But you just keep... Driving them all off. What about that Barney, huh? He likes you. He likes you. Do you like him? Huh? 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 So, yeah, no, she, there's no, like, like, conversational transition. She's like, dating sucks. He's just like, so, let's talk about your dating life now that there's been a two millisecond pause in the conversation. Uh, And then just, like, kind of starts yelling at her to date Barney. Uh, and, and basically saying that she's a fox who's beating off men. Something like that. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, a that fox badly. who's beating off men. Yeah. How is the phrasing on, on your hosting not the worst double entendre of the episode? Uh, so... As soon as Ro- Miss Rosemary escapes this incredibly creepy interaction, uh, Ronnie Howard runs back in and says, Hey, Pa, can we go down to Walker's Drugstore and get some ice cream? Because Opie knows that if he goes to the drugstore, the lady who runs the pharmacy will give him free ice cream. Uh, uh, at, the t- at this point in the show, uh, the- Andy Griffith is dating Ellie, who is the... 20 year old who runs the drugstore yeah yeah the only woman in this town who has a college degree yeah. uh, has an actual job but everyone just refers to her as the lady druggist and mostly uses her as an ice cream purveyor yeah like this this woman went to school and learned medicine but everyone's just like oh she gives us uh sugar pills and ice cream yeah and she hates her life that woman with a college degree sure makes a mean root beer float <laughs> and uh so uh, as they're as they're walking out to the drugstore, uh, Andy has a very weird idea, and he talks to his young, loud son about this idea. <laughs> he basically does a weird, like bizarro version of the social contract, where the he he, he goes on the speech. And he says, "You know, if uh, if there's a street sweeper in town, I feel like people have an obligation to litter a little bit." His and, his exact words are, "A good town owes its citizens." A right to keep busy. And there's a street sweeper example. He also there's says... the tooth doctor. Yeah, if there's a dentist in town... No, he says tooth doctor. Oh, tooth doctor. Uh, <laughs> then folks ought to get a cavity every now and then. Yeah. And if there is a sheriff's deputy, well, don't you think we ought to have a little bit of crime every now and then? Weird, weird 
weird take on just basic, like, human obligations that, like, we have to have societal ills because there are people whose job it is to fix those societal ills. So nothing can get better. Like Very, very weird idea for the sheriff to have, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and Opie says, I have no idea what you're talking about, Father. So I, I'm a child. I, I, what, what is this? I don't know what this has to do with us getting ice cream at the drugstore. And, of course, in classic TV fashion, Andrew responds with, yeah, the drugstore. Smash now, cut there's to an the idea. planning of a crime. Uh, so th- th- this is the, the meat of the episode. So they cut from this, this monologue where Andy is using his child as a sounding board. And he is now at the drugstore with his girlfriend. And she is saying, the thing we're about to do is so stupid. Why did I agree to do this with you? His child is there. Uh, and they run through the plan for this crime that they are going to falsify a crime, the sheriff, his girlfriend, and his child. They are going to make up an armed robbery of the drugstore with a, where a man with a mask came in, pointed a gun at Ellie, and demanded everything in the cash register. I, I, I want to spe- like clarify this. They are, they are faking an armed robbery to make their friend feel a little better about himself insane like so again this is like the hard left turn into a shield into the shield like it is the weirdest solution to a very basic problem if andy griffith was a hostage negotiator he'd get out of it by setting the building on fire (laughs) uh so he is he is planning this felony with his girlfriend and his child like opie is very clearly like why am i here send me home for this I'm going to have to live my life knowing that you did this. <laughs> I, I, I want to point out, Ellie's complaint about this crime is that it's actually too cheap. They decide on a specific number of how much money got stolen. And it's $24. And she says, that's kind of like a cheap crime. By the way, if anyone's curious, $24 in 1961 is about $200 in 2018 money. Uh, solid robbery. Solid robbery, I yeah. guess. But uh, they, uh, but Ellie says, that seems kind of cheap. Should we like raise the stakes? And Andy's response is basically, no, nah, Barney can't handle that. Like, he would he would just explode in just, like, energy and and this, the, his pants would fly off if yeah. he went to twenty four ninety five. We can't handle more than this. <laughs> you know, this is supposed to be one of the more family-friendly venues, but there are no children here, so whatever. Yeah, no. Uh, we're we're going to, like, continue swearing like wounded pirates. It's fine. Uh, so, as they're doing this this felony uh and, like barney like rushes in and is ecstatic yeah like, he's so happy he's uh he's got a giant like typewriter case with him that is like his fingerprinting kit and he says like hey ellie you, you got held up they took 24 dollars they put a gun in your face that rules you almost <laughs> died hell yes i mean that's very bad fuck yeah good for this guy <laughs> Uh, this is my new best friend in the entire world. Man who almost shot you. <laughs> uh, but, and then, so he comes in, sprays talcum powder all over her, her, her store, uh, does not take a single fingerprint, and sprints out. So he is having, like, a manic episode. <laughs> so the, the, basically the goal is uh, Andy is going to falsify this police report uh, Barney will have a fake crime that he can pursue for the remainder of his days. So he's going to be hunting down this criminal that doesn't exist forever. 
he's going to take that 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 purpose in life and he's going to have the confidence to ask out Miss Rosemary. You know, gaslighting. Yeah. He's going to drive this man insane. Uh and I have to say like I am a bad wingman. Uh I am I am not good at it by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know how to talk to people when I'm trying to sleep with them, but at my worst I have never been like, okay, so this is the part in Wing Manning where I'm going to lie to a judge. <laughs> um, none of my plans have involved. <laughs> I, I, I have to point out, like, Dan once pretended not to remember a conversation that he and I had for like an hour, and I wanted to murder him. Yeah. It nearly ended our friendship. Yeah. I can't imagine the idea that you would give your best friend this level of weird-ass gaslighting... And think that that is okay. Just something that would drive them a crime with no solution. It, it's like I wrote you a mystery novel and ripped out the back page and burned it. Just, like, a cop having a crime with no solution is the plot of, like, a 1990s psychological thriller in which someone slowly goes insane and starts, like, writing on the walls and then eventually, like, assassinates a senator. Starring Val Kilmer. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, damn it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, so, of course, the only person who can, like, think through this clearly is Opie, who, yeah. who acknowledges this. And by the way, just as a general idea, just you should always have a six- or seven-year-old boy around, better if they're illiterate, to just bounce all of your ideas off of. And if they go, that's stupid, don't do that plan. Children make great sounding boards for when you're planning a crime. <laughs> like, if they can figure out a problem, then you know you're screwed. So Opie comes in the next day. He says, hey, I I got in trouble at school because I couldn't stop thinking about this horrible thing you did. <laughs> Father. Father. Moral trans- guidance. Father, the person treating me. weighs heavy upon me. <laughs> I, I cannot focus in my studies. I am getting trouble in it with my teachers. I just keep thinking about the immoral thing we've done all day. And I'm getting, I've been put in the corner twice for this. He's like, ha yeah. <laughs> That's adorable. Yeah, yeah. And he's fully aware of what's going to happen, and he thinks it's funny. He's like, yeah, well, now we've given in. He says we've given Barney's life purpose. Yeah. <laughs> I have gifted my friend with purpose for life. Yeah, so But Opie, he will eventually learn his a lie. Opie is, is pondering how long-term feasible this crime is. He's like, so I feel like Barney is eventually going to go insane, right? Like, he's going to not be able to find the criminal, and he's going to go crazy. And Andy's thing is that he's going to just constantly be talking about this crime, and he's going to be happier because he, he, he never catches him. It's going to be like a dog chasing a car. And we never get a chance to, like, tease that out, because at that moment, Barney comes into the, the jailhouse holding a man at gunpoint. <laughs> yeah. A man we've never seen before enters, being held by Barney, also with no handcuffs on. Uh, and he's being escorted into the jailhouse, and Barney says something like, I got it! I caught the thief! Let's be clear what he did here. He went down to the train yard and picked up a random drifter. He goes through his deductive process and he says, So, it had to have been a stranger because no one in town would have, would have robbed them. Was it by car? No. No one saw a strange car coming in town. Plane? We got no airfield. Uh, boat? We're landlocked. So it must have been by freight. So what he did was just go down to the train yard and arrest the first man he saw. Which is totally gonna hold up in court. I Actually, it will. It will. Do you, oh, yeah. And so, Andy is the judge. His best friend is the judge, so... But, so, 
we sh- should say, like, the reason that everything that's happened... There it is. There, there goes yeah. Andy and Barney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should say that everything that's happened so far has been treated as at least okay. And the reason that that, that is the case is this was basically before there were any legal standards about how a cop had to treat you. Uh, something that happened a couple of years after this was the Warren Court, which is most famous for Brown versus Board of Education. But actually what it did was it established that you had a right to a public defender, that uh, a cop had to have a reason to come into your house, that they couldn't do a legal search. And so just for this time period... All the standard for how we know that cops are supposed to behave, those came to like Supreme Court decisions that happened years after this was filmed. This was actually probably normal and a thing that you could absolutely do at the time this was filmed. You had basically just the cultural norm was cops are going to do whatever they feel like and it's fine. And it's very different now. I mean, <laughs> now we have the slightest inkling that maybe cops shouldn't do this. We have, we have rules that say they shouldn't do things. Yeah. Whether or not that is enforced is a matter of public debate. Uh... Anyway, so Barney is swinging his gun around. Very little tr- trigger discipline on Barney right now. Uh, and Opie immediately starts screaming. Just, <laughs> oh, oh, what is this? What is happening? What is this? This is very not okay. Like, he's the... Oh, and, and Andy is kind of like, oh, shit. Something very bad just happens. And, like, shoes his screaming, distraught child out of the jail. Which... I am not a child psychologist, but I'm pretty sure that kid is just done. Like, that, that kid's never going to be okay forever. Yeah. Like, you don't get past seeing your dad commit a felony. So, uh, so they, they, set, they set this man down, and Barney pulls a- uh, Andy into the back room. And Andy has a moment here where he could say, no, no, we need to stop this right now. Instead, he goes... Let me find out where this guy's from and do what I always do, and that's call a sheriff in another town. Yeah. So the the solution is, he's, he's really, like, stalling for time. So his plan is, the guy says that he's from Chattanooga, uh, and that his name is... Tr- uh, Tracy Tr- Crawford. Tracy Crawford. So what they're going to do is call the sheriff in Chattanooga, which is not a small town. Current population is uh, 15,000 people. Uh, probably something close to that in the 1960s. And they're going to call the sheriff of Chattanooga and just ask if he they know a Tracy Crawford. Uh, great airtight plan. Uh, while, while, while Andy's on the phone, Barney sets about interrogating his suspect. He initially asks if it's okay to work Tracy Crawford over. So he, he is asking if it's okay to beat a prisoner. He, he's, he's got a bag of oranges in the back and a phone book. Cause, yeah. Because Barney Five knows a phone book don't leave bruises. He is ready to go Guantanamo on this man, but and he's that, too dumb to do so. So the he, interrogation scene, go yeah, for it. He 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 does an interrogation scene that took a, a minute to figure out what the hell he's trying to do because he just starts pouring water. He's like nice cold water, and we were like, what the fuck is he doing? And eventually we were like, oh no no no! In normal abusive interrogations that were happening during this time. You had just starved this person, you dehydrated this person for like three days, and then offered him water to talk. So he's messing up a, uh, an, an extremely recognizable torture at the time period. So he just pours a glass of water and put and like dangles it in front of this man and says, you could have some water if you talk. He's just like, I'm not thirsty, I, it's been no. 30 seconds. I, I, I'm right here. 
He's trying to pull a David Clark, but is too dumb to do so. Yeah, he's he's trying to go a rapio on this. Guy. And he he uh, he pulls out his flashlight as he has seen done in detective movies and, and magazines, and he says, "What if I fly, flash this light in your eyes?" And if there's a phallic symbol, if I've ever seen one, his flashlight is just limp. Yeah. It's just like a little laser pointer that he doesn't even get in the eyes. It shines right between the man's like, right like, there. like forehead. Yeah. So Barty is failing to torture a man. Uh, and meanwhile, Andy's on the phone and he gives the sheriff from Ch- Chattanooga this man's name, height, weight, and hair color. Yeah. And then he hangs up and says, all right, well, we're going to have to drop those charges because we're going to extradite you to Tennessee where you have been, like, where you're wanted on five other charges. Five other crimes. There, no one is guilty of any, like, specific thing. They're just like, oh, this guy did seven crimes somewhere. <laughs> They're vague about it as possible. It basically works off of, like, Grand Theft Auto rules. Like, you have a three-star wanted level. <laughs> you better just go hang out in a garage and change the color of your car for a little bit. And then it'll be ki- it'll be cool. So, uh, uh, other question. Why did this man give them his actual name? What? Why did he say, I'm, I'm this guy and this is where I'm from? Did he just forget that he was wanted for five other crimes? Well, so the explanation is the sheriff recognized one of his aliases and what he looks like. So he didn't just give him his actual name. He gave him one of his aliases. You know how you have to have like five aliases that you're not allowed to deviate from? Like, he could have just made up a name, but he's like, shit, I can only think of three names at, at any given time. Uh, and also, another weird thing is, like, again, Chattanooga is not a small town. So either, A, this is really bad writing, and the sheriff has, like, a supernatural ability to me- remember every single criminal, or this dude is a serial killer. <laughs> uh, and so, I want to point out, there's still, like, ten minutes of show left. That's the end of the crime portion. Yeah. This so, is never, end, th- th- that's never followed up on, ever. The rest of the show is all about Barney Fife getting his dick wet. Yeah, you think it's going to be about, like, them dealing with the, I mean, in a good show, this would be about them dealing with the ethical ramifications of what they've done. Like, oh, Barney is really confident now. He struts out. It's kind of like doing that thing where you hold your belt uh, and talk about how it's a jungle out there, but he has to patrol it. Uh, and you think it's going to be about them, like, like dealing with, the ethics of what they've done. Nope. Nope. It immediately takes a hard, hard, hard left turn into just matchmaking. Yeah, so remember the name of the show? Remember how it's called Andy the Matchmaker? Hey, remember Miss... I don't even remember her name. What is Rosemary. That? Remember Miss Rosemary? She's coming back now. The next scene is the next day at the Andy at Andy's house, and he's reading the newspaper about this wonderful story that Barney's a hero. And Barney comes up and sa- and Andy says to him, well, I guess now that you got all this confidence, you're going to go out and ask out Miss Rosemary, am I right? Barney says, no, the sh- she can wait. The shittiest answer, he says, Miss Rosemary has been there. And Miss Rosemary will continue to be there. I'm going to go out and I'm going to see what, what kind of options I got. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to check out the local talent. We got five minutes. Oh, Barney Fife is going to go lay some pipe, essentially, yeah. is what he's saying. He's going to go uh, He's going to pr- use his, his new hero status. Which you know means, like, he's going to hang out in front of the high school like Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> That's what made you go, oh! That got us the oh! It's grown it dazed and confused, not us. Uh, there was a sexy pedophile character in that movie. Yeah, it's real weird. Yeah. Uh, he has an Oscar now. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so, 
we should get to what happens next is that Miss Rosemary comes up to deliver, I don't know, fruit or something. And, <laughs> and Andy says, well, now it's time for some psychosexual manipulation. Andy's and, general attitude at this moment is not like, I don't think Barney should, uh, should hit on other people. It's like, I did a criminal conspiracy with my child. And you are going to couple up with this person. I'm not going to deal with you being single and on the prowl. I did a criminal conspiracy. You're going to settle down immediately. So the way he does this is when Miss Rosemary comes up, he says, Oh, Miss Rosemary, you know you're a fine woman. You're as fine a woman as any. And I would like it. And he basically draws out. I've been, I had something I've wanted to say to you for a long time, but out of respect for Barney, I didn't say it. I love it if you let me call on you sometime. Which does not sound like date. Yeah. It sounds like I'm going to show Every up Every woman in this audience just, just gave out a, like, involuntary ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Worst asking out imaginable. And, and it was probably super common. And, and Barney, of course, gets real angry about this. And he says, wait a minute. I should have first dibs on this woman. I'm the one who's been walking her to church. I've invested so much shoe leather on her. I should have first claim. I am not exaggerating. That is These verbatim. are the verbatim, the words. And so Miss Rosemary stands there while these two men bid on her, essentially. And her expression is utter, like, like panic. Like, she's surrounded by coyotes. Like, just pure fight-or-flight instinct fear. Interesting choice by the actress. Extremely accurate. Uh, but Barney immediately becomes angry, and it's not because, like, his, the, the love of his life is taken away from him. His sexual safety net has been deprived of him. He no longer has a safety school. Like, he, has, he does not value Miss Rosemary as, like, a person that he's romantically interested in. He's just like, she's, what, she has to be there. <laughs> and, so, and so Barney, like, with his back against the wall, asks her out. And after, like, eight minutes of coaxing, she says yes. End of episode. You have to kill Obi because otherwise he will blab. Yeah. You, he is, you, I, that is giant. a loose end. You have to murder that child. Yeah. So anytime Andy is like, hey, do a thing. Like he's going to clean your room and he's going to be like, how about I call the federal prosecutor? <laughs> how about I go to the paper, old man? Like what is he going to do when he's 13 and rebellious? Like he's going to be like, you can't, you can't stay out after 11 be like, you can't have the world know the things I know about you. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is your introduction to The Andy Griffith Show. I am Marty Schneider. This is Dan Ludwood. We are Breaking Mayberry. Please follow us online at Break Mayberry on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Breaking Mayberry. Uh, BreakingMayberry.com is almost up. Uh, please stick around for the rest of the shows. Check out all of these. And please donate to the Everything is Awesome Comedy Festival. Uh, and that's it for us. We will see you all down at the fishing hole. Y'all come back now.